This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. Unions are on the front lines of advocating human rights. That puts them in natural collaboration with non-governmental organizations doing the same. Amnesty International is one such NGO and has strong ties to global trade unions. Now, even though trade unionists are by definition human rights defenders, because their core function is to promote workers' rights, most trade unionists wouldn't see themselves in those terms. Today, I speak with Shane Enright, a workers' rights campaigner and global trade union advisor at Amnesty International. He recounts various campaigns organized by Amnesty that have tried to pressure governments to release some teachers held in prison. He also talks about climate change and the September 20th general strike. Shane Enright, welcome to Fresh Head. I'm very happy to be with you and uh, very happy to be with your uh, listeners. I'm speaking to you from a very humid Bangkok at the Education International Congress. Yes, it's been quite a week. But let me ask you a question. You have a very interesting background. You started in transport and now you work for Amnesty. Tell me how you got involved in the unions in transport. Well, it's been quite a long journey, and I suppose I better start at the beginning. I was um, born 59 years ago in Spain, uh, raised by a hippie mother, um, and really impacted by living under a dictatorship. And in that dictatorship, uh, social movements and political movements were repressed, but the unions were working underground. So even as a young kid, I was very conscious of the positive role that unions can play in, in representing and defending uh, people's rights. When I got to the UK, in the first couple of jobs I had, which were casual jobs, I saw a great deal, in particular, unfortunately, of, of racism and of ill-treatment of workers. So the first permanent job I got, I immediately joined the union. And it's sort of in my nature not to be on the sidelines, and, but to be active and to be positive and to try to bring about that change. So, you know, for my sins over the eight years or so that I worked in community organisations, I managed to get sacked three times for, for <laughs> organising. It didn't stop me keep on going. And eventually my union, which is a general union with over a million workers, a substantial number of whom are unskilled, many in the transport sector, my my general union asked me to come and work at the headquarters in London. So I had eight years uh, working in the headquarters of the Transport and General Workers Union. And those were, it was a diversity of roles. So because I have language skills, I worked as an assistant in the international department. Uh, I worked in the research department. I did uh, a couple of years really interesting work as a industrial advisor on the food, drink and tobacco industries. Uh, so it's pretty wide ranging. Right. The, but at a certain point in time, the International Transport Workers Federation, uh, which is one of about 10 global unions, the only global union also based in London, Uh, The International Transport Workers Federation had a bit of a problem in terms of a short-term staffing need. Uh, And one of my former colleagues at the Transport and General Workers Union had moved over there, and uh, a suggestion had been made that maybe I could fill the gap, because, again, it requires somebody with language skills. So apparently, behind my back, my general secretary made a deal with their general secretary for me to go on (laughs) secondment for six months, 
And um, lo and behold, I was so much in my element that the six months turned into 10 years. Oh my God. And I was promoted through the lines and I was aviation secretary, which uh, meant that I was responsible for supporting one million organized aviation workers around the world. Uh, everything from you know, mechanics to check-in staff to baggage handlers, cabin crew and pilots. So you have a long experience in unions, different types of unions doing different types of jobs. How did you make the transition to Amnesty International? Well, for a start, you know, when I die, they'll bury me with, it'll say I'm a trade unionist because that's what I am, that's my fundamental core identity. The, the shift really was a pragmatic one. Uh, one of the problems uh, as Aviation Secretary in the International Transport Workers Federation was I was traveling for 30 weeks a year. I was taking on average 60 flights a year. And um, as a global union that provides financial support for our poorest affiliates to participate in events, they and the staff therefore have to fly economy so it was very very uh, demanding and particularly disruptive in terms of any possibility of a sort of sustainable home life yeah so even though i would say certainly say that it's the best job in the world because aviation workers are the most globalized uh, by definition they're the most international uh, by definition they're the most multilingual most multicultural so it's a, a, an absolutely awesome uh, role we were very successful we we doubled the membership but after nine years i said okay I'm going to stop this job on my 10th anniversary, mm. basically to look for a job uh, in, in London, which is where right, I Right, so live. less travelling, stay, less stay traveling, home, basically. And now, there was no way that I was going to look for a job that wasn't trade union rights-centred or workers' rights-centred. And, and as it happened, after a break, when I was ready to look at what that opportunity might be, the very first job that um, I saw was for trade union campaign manager at the United Kingdom section of Amnesty International. And it was clear from um, the information pack that, that they sent me um, that actually this was a newly created job. Yeah. Um, that Amnesty International had strong relationships with trade unions in the United Kingdom and that they wanted to upscale uh, the work with, with huh. trade unions. Now, even though trade unionists are by definition human rights defenders because their core function is to promote workers' rights. Most trade unionists wouldn't see themselves in those terms. And I'm very conscious that the, the world of human rights is, is very conflicted. So where, for example, does the balance between LGBTI and religious rights lie? Right. What are the limits of freedom of expression versus hate speech? Incredibly complex, uh, incredibly subtle and rather historically alien world to me apart from you know tub thumping headlines yeah. and I thought well I want to learn about this world this would be a great opportunity to start to understand some of the complexities while retaining of course that fundamental right. identity as a trade unionist supporting uh, trade unions so Amnesty International is a non-governmental organization and working a lot in human rights. Yes. How is it connected to the trade unions globally? Well, Amnesty International uh, was formed in London in 1961. It now has national sections in over 60 countries. It pulls together 
around 7 million supporters. It's a research and evidence-based, uh, evidence-led organisation uh, to the extent that we look at human rights abuses of, in, of different forms in different countries and write reports about them. But unlike other NGOs, we're also a campaigning and mobilising organisation. So not only do we provide the evidence of abuses, uh, we then develop campaign strategies to address those abuses and to you know, rectify the deficits. And those campaigns depend on activists on the ground or they depend on our parliamentary or political advocates. They depend on our, our work across our different communities. Um, one thing I'd say just before we continue is Amnesty is what we call a full spectrum human rights organisation. And, and, and that means that we will cover all of the rights contained in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Workers' rights, uh, LGBTI rights, right to education, right to food, social economic rights, as well as uh, you know, political rights and freedom of expression. Yeah. There's a lot of rights. I mean, there's like, they are. I mean, like 300 are. or you know, huge, huge UDHR, numbers of rights. UDHR has, <laughs> I think, 54 articles. 54, but I mean, aren't there more rights more. being proposed? Well, the, the, right? they're more all the time. Yeah. So, for example, you know, I will constantly remind my colleagues that the core conventions of the International Labour Organization, the rate of them, are also universal human rights, and you can you know, stretch that as far as you want. So an amnesty being a full spectrum, meaning anytime there's a new human right that sort of gets adopted at that global level, which I think happens quite regularly, it gets included in Amnesty's work? Well, we obviously have to make choices. So, for example, there are journalists in jail uh, all over the world every single day. We can't campaign on behalf of every individual. What we will do is we will identify a case or a country where we think that improvement for that individual can lead to a wider political and social change that will benefit a larger number of people. Right. And similarly, there's some subjects that we have expertise on, and there are others in which we don't. So for example, we're not doing a great deal of work in the UK at the moment around the right to housing, but there are plenty of other NGOs right. that do that. Yeah. Okay, and, and trade unions, there's a lot of mobilization happening on the trade unions, they're connected to human rights, Amnesty is well, connected to human rights, doing mobilization, so there's a nice overlap. But you asked me a specific question, what's the relationship yeah, between exactly. Amnesty and, and trade unions? Well, one of the things that appealed to me about um, the UK role, UK trade union campaigner that I took, up, took on, is that Amnesty's UK section, which is one of 60, is unique in having a long-standing arrangement for trade unions to affiliate to us. So we don't see trade unions as external partners that we might collaborate with from time to time, but we see them as part of our internal community just like our youth groups or our student groups or our you know lo other local activists you know they, they come to our annual general meetings they vote our annual general right, meetings so and so they're part of us and in this year we will be celebrating on world human rights day uh, we will be celebrating the 40th anniversary of our uk trade union network wow um, and it's because that community uh, exists within Amnesty, the decision was taken to create the role uh, I now have. Now, trade unions, of course, as I said earlier on, are, are by definition human rights organisations. But trade unions also have a very wide social justice agenda. So, for example, give a concrete example. In the United Kingdom, many unions, particularly in the education field, but also in the health field, 
have conference policies on female genital mutilation or policies on early enforced uh, marriage. That's a domain that Amnesty International is also working in. So we made common cause with the UK teacher trade unions and, and others to get them to support an application we were making to the UK government for funding to run some human rights education projects on female mm -hmm. genital mutilation in Sierra Leone and Burkina Faso. And without the support of our UK union partners, uh, we wouldn't have qualified to make that application. Oh, right. So they opened new so doorways. They opened new doorways to right. us. And of course, let's not forget the scale of unions. So, you know, unions in the UK are the biggest social justice movement that we have. And we have an Amnesty International to show some uh, humility and some recognition. I'll give you a different example. One of the things that trade unions have, not just in the UK, but, but across certainly the developed world, autonomous LGBTI caucuses within their memberships. And um, LGBTI rights is also a major concern for Amnesty internationally, but also in the UK. We have our own LGBTI network, which, which campaigns on, on relevant issues. And the last couple of years, our focus has properly shifted towards the question of trans rights trans people being you know, marginalized and uh, subject to all sorts of repression in many different countries and in many different uh, contexts. And we chose to work with Sakris Tupula, uh, a trans man from Finland who was required to undergo sterilization and uh, medicalization before his gender would be uh, recognized. So we ran a very widespread campaign amongst amnesty activists in the UK to seek to convince the, the government of Finland to change their attitude. And as part of that campaign, TUC invited Sacris to be the keynote speaker at the TUC's LGBT conference last summer. So. Sacris came along, I went with him, it was a very successful intervention and lo and behold three months later at the TUC Congress the TUC passed uh, overwhelmingly a resolution in support of self-identification rights for trans people which is a response to a consultation the government's undertaking at the moment. So, you know, this is an example of working hand in glove so, to a common cause. So the, the Finnish government is considering changing its attitude? Well, the good news is not only have we now got TUC policy in Britain, but there's been a change of government in Finland, and virtually all of the demands that were being made by the trans community in Finland are now on the agenda for the new government. So there's been really substantial progress, both in terms of Sacris's rights and those of his community, and in terms of a, a positive change here in the UK. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting the way, it's sort of like this black box of social mobilization, all this behind the scenes work, speaking at a conference, mobilizing campaigns, connecting to trade unions, NGOs involved, lobbying government. I mean, all of these things are sort of so key and sometimes sort of hidden from the public eye. But let me give you a really a great example of, of how that can work. Mm. So we've been working in partnership with Education International to seek freedom for Mahdi Abu Dib, the Bahrain teacher trade union leader, 
um, who was imprisoned solely for carrying out his legitimate trade union activities. And in fact, he was tortured in prison as well. He was um, there for five years. He in was prison. in for five years. And so we were uh, campaigning on his behalf in the UK, and, but internationally. But our, all our campaign strategies were pre-planned and pre-discussed with Education International. The fact that this was a partnership with Education International then meant that we automatically had buy-in from all the UK teacher trade unions. So they were behind us in what we wanted to do. We also knew that the government of Bahrain was spending £10 million a year to hire two PR companies to whitewash their public relations reputation in the United Kingdom alone. So that, that 10 million they were devoting to public just in relations the UK. just in the, in the UK. So one of the projects that we did was to work with our youth groups in primary schools uh, to get them to send uh, solidarity messages to Mahdi, but also protests to the Bahraini embassy. Now I. I have to say to you, it doesn't matter how many million dollars you have, you cannot whitewash away the commitment of those young people, the activism that they're showing. And that, of course, really put the ambassador's nose uh, out of joint. So a case of each of us leveraging the tools uh, that we have. So and what we, happened to him? So well, Mahdi was released. Now, I, I'll be frank, he wasn't released early. But by the point at which Mahdi was released, um, the jails of Bahrain had been installed with revolving doors. So the most prominent political activists, no sooner were they out than they were immediately rearrested on another charge and straight back into the oh Bahraini judicial system. So that hadn't been a feature earlier on, but it was a very widespread feature at the point when Mahdi was released. So um, has he gone back so to jail? No, so what we did was we ran an international 10-day countdown to the date of Mahdi's release, and this was a Twitter countdown. And it coincided, for example, with the NASUWT conference, 500 people in the room holding up placards, photos being taken. We did a uh, protest outside the Bahraini embassy in London, another photo, six days to Mahdi's release, uh, five days to Mali's release, etc. Very, very wide, wide and impactful Twitter storm. And the thing about Twitter, and I'm not really a social media person, but I took up Twitter in a serious way because it's about the only uncensored way that Bahrainis can uh, know what is happening on their behalf from outside the mainstream country. media is just sort the of mainstream media state censored and controlled. And of course, it's if people express themselves too freely on Facebook, then they put themselves at risk. Whereas, you know, merely following a Brit that's saying all sorts of interesting things tends to slip through the, the, the censorship net. So, you know, I, I, I was aware that many of my tweets were reaching Mahdi Aboudib's daughter, who I had met during the course of uh, the campaign. And so, yes, in terms of the outcome, not only did the revolving doors not turn for Mahdi at all and haven't subsequently... In fact, he's here. I met him. Yes, uh, but he's had a level of freedom of movement that former, other former political prisoners have been denied. So I met him, first of all, uh, when he won the very prestigious Arthur Svensson Award in Oslo uh, a, a couple of years back. And this will be the third time that 
I've had the privilege to be with Mahdi and, and his colleague Jalila Al-Salman. So, you know, sometimes you have to measure success by keeping people safe. Exactly, rather than necessarily exactly. getting, getting them out. But it's an example of a major campaign. And, and at the moment, we're campaigning on behalf of another uh, teacher trading this, this time. Where? Uh, Esmail Abdi in Iran. And what's happening? Um, well, it, the situation's very difficult because the geopolitical situation between Iran, the UK, and the US, as you know, has deteriorated very uh, recently. And quickly. Um, even in the prominent case of Nazanin Radcliffe, her situation is, is very, very poor. So uh, we're really working in the background at the moment on Esmail's case because we think that work that's too prominent uh, in the foreground is actually not going to, to help him. So we have to make these judgment calls. Right about what are the best ways but, to... What, what's he being charged with and um, held for? Well, he was... Uh, he took part in a number of protests outside the Ministry of Education to complain about cuts in uh, the budget and uh, the poor standards of, of, of teaching that were available to, to kids in Iran. Um, he also wanted improvements in uh, working conditions and an increase in the number of teachers in uh, the classroom. So these are absolutely bread and butter issues. Of that, that, unions? You know, of unions that will be discussed openly and freely in most of the places that I visit. But the, you know, the Iranian state won't, will broke no opposition. And you know, it's important to understand in Iran, the constitution says that trade unions must be Islamic in character. Um, that means that uh, independent trade unions are determined by the courts to be acting contrary to the state. So it's treason uh, simply to have an independent trade union. Wow. Um, nevertheless, independent workers' organizations have been very tenacious. So particularly, we have the Tehran Bus Workers' Union uh, that's been active for 10 years. We have the Haftape uh, sugarcane refining mill workers, uh, 50,000 of them have been active for many years. And the third major group are the Iran Teacher Trade Associations, of which Esmail Abdi is a member. And, you know, we've worked with the bus workers before, we've worked with sugar workers before, we're working with Esmail now. And the problem in Iran is that as the economy has declined as a result of sanctions, workers are going unpaid for longer and longer periods of time. We're talking about six-month periods of not being paid. Oh, my God. We're talking about uh, deteriorating uh, working conditions. We're also seeing the expropriation of uh, public assets by um, cabals of the Revolutionary Guard through processes of privatization. So there have been spontaneous mass uprisings by unorganized workers' groups uh, and the states found it very, very difficult to deal with that. Mm. But there's been a tendency, for example, to not only imprison uh, workers engaged in these spontaneous protests around working conditions. They aren't calling for the overthrow of the state by any means. It's right. practical stuff. It's Get like, paid on time. I want my bread on the table, exactly. <laughs> right. But we're seeing an increasing trend, for instance, uh, for flogging to be included in the sentences of these people. The state clearly is very... Of the trade union. Yes, yeah. is clearly very scared. I mean, these are incredible stories, and I'm sure there's more of them in all different parts of the world. But I sort of, I want to ask a question about a different sort of issue that isn't necessarily about an individual in a particular context that you know might have laws in the state against unions which we know there's plenty of but an issue that is perhaps more 
well, certainly global in nature and sort of affecting everyone if we like it or not. You know, and that, that issue is climate change. Sure, and absolutely. That, yeah, I mean, this yeah. is an issue that is obviously the young people in the world today are fed up with it. They mm. are looking at mm. old policymakers and saying, you're not mm. answering the questions that I have. You're not furthering the interests that I have as a child. There, you know, there's an existential crisis going on where, where young people today are looking into the future and saying, I don't even know if we're going to be alive when I get to be your age. So how does Amnesty International fit into this large issue of climate change or the climate crisis as we now call it? Well, I'm so glad you've asked me because that's perhaps the, the most important uh, challenge that we face uh, today. And by the way, it's not just young people that are fed up with it. <laughs> Some oldies like me are certainly fed up with it. Amnesty International historically has not been in the climate change space. Uh, there are many other uh, active and effective NGOs, Friends of the Earth, Greenpeace and so on, that have been. But, of course, climate change has a tremendous and pervasive and uh, intense human rights uh, impacts. And since uh, we recruited Kumi Naidu as our new Secretary General, who comes to us direct uh, from Greenpeace, Amnesty International has taken the decision that climate change will be, moving forward, our movement's global priority. The human rights impact of climate change will be our, our global priority because it's the planet's global uh, priority. Uh, so we're at the stage now where we've um, got a global strategy. We've consulted on that. It gives us a direction of travel. And next year, we'll start to roll out a global campaign. And that global campaign will be about finding a space within a community that is seeking a response, of finding a space where we can add the greatest value and be the most use. We're not coming in to muscle anybody else out. We're, we're coming in to see where, what's our role, where can we help, what can we do that's useful. Um, but in the very short term, we've uh, watched with wonder and awe the response of, of young people through the school's climate strikes, the, the voice of Greta Thunberg, the commitment of, of, of young people to say enough is mm. enough. And so on the 20th of September this year, there will be a global school's climate strike. It'll be it's a general strike. It'll be a general school strike. It'll be taking place in many countries mm. uh, around the world. I think last time round it was almost 100 countries. Uh, so Amnesty International it has committed to supporting that, that initiative. Now, we're absolutely insistent that we will do so in the background. We're not going to take over anybody's campaign. We want to be adult allies, if, you put, if I can put it in that context. So in London, there will be a, a young person's assembly taking place on the 17th at City Hall, where young people will come together to start to articulate a collective a set of political ambitions ahead of the 20th. Kumi Naidu, our Secretary General, is part of a um, global civil society initiative that will be taking place two days ahead of the, of the strike. And we know that the UN has convened a, a special summit and all of the efforts are being directed towards that special summit. Now, my role in all of this is niche but important. So one of the things that the school climate strikers are calling for is exactly as you say, a general strike. 
and it's been my responsibility to have a dialogue with those young people to explain that there are many circumstances and contexts in which sympathetic adults and sympathetic workers simply cannot take that action. Right. You know, many workers are low paid, employers can sack you on the spot for not to, uh, turning up, some workers need to put food on the table. So the, you know, there may be circumstances in which people can take that action and in which the they can't. The privilege to strike is it, not it, held it, by everyone. It, 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 exactly. And so we've encouraged them to nuance their language just to, and to understand that if, you know, if you're a low-paid barista on a zero-hours contract and you're not on the street, it's not because you're an enemy of uh, the cause. Right. Uh, but on the positive side, one of my jobs here in uh, Bangkok at the Global Education International Congress is to uh, try to get a sense of the mood of teacher trade unions towards a school climate and strike. And what have you found? Uh, overwhelmingly positive, overwhelmingly positive. And you know, I'm going to report back to two places. So I'm going to report back to our UK uh, climate change campaigner. He's leading for us uh, on the ground and I'm going to say to him, look, uh, the Scottish Teachers Union that I've spoken to recommends you go and speak to uh, the local authorities. The person I've spoken to in another union is recommending a different initiative. Right. So I'm going to take all of that back. But meanwhile, I'm going to be taking a very strong message back to uh, Amnesty's global uh, climate change team at our secretariat that uh, education unions are, are wholly behind the initiative. And it's certainly institutionally a very, very powerful message was adopted through a motion at this conference. So are you pessimistic, optimistic when it comes to the ability to organize large numbers of people to change behaviors and socioeconomic conditions to the extent that it will prevent climate change, stave off the major consequences that we're, well, we're likely going to face? Well, it's a huge challenge. Massive our, challenge. Our, our, our economy is in the hands of a self-seeking kleptocracy, uh, an economic elite, and the you know in economic inequality in the world has been growing. But we have to be hopeful. We have to seek uh, that change. And you know, for every two steps forward we take, we will be taking one step uh, back. I think the most important thing in the 21st century is for us not to operate in our own silos. And in making common cause, it's also important for us to do so with humility, uh, with good grace. I spoke earlier on about the responsibility Amnesty has to find its place to make contributions in uh, these campaigns and to not always be out in the front. Uh, sometimes to be leading from behind. But if you look at the mood in uh, the Congress here, if you look at the determination of the delegates, uh, particularly if you look at the ambition of this Congress in terms of the change it uh, seeks and the journey ahead that it has identified, it's impossible not to be optimistic. Well, Shane Enright, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed. Really a pleasure of talking and best of luck on all the different actions you're taking and particularly on the September 20th general strike. Thank you very much, Will. My pleasure. Shane Enright is a workers' rights campaigner and global trade union advisor at Amnesty International. Today's episode was put together in collaboration with Education International. A transcript of today's interview can be found at freshedpodcast.com. Please note that opinions expressed on FreshEd are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not FreshEd, which takes no institutional position. 
If you've liked what you've heard today, please consider rating us on iTunes. It really does help. Fresh Ed's producers are Sherry Yang, Hong Zong, and Lushik Waba. Fatih Akhtas is our researcher, and Ing Jung Cho is our content developer. Original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week.